The incidence of asthma has doubled in the past two decades, though the cause of this rise is difficult to pinpoint. While the hygiene hypothesis has for years served as one possible explanation, newer studies show a possible link between asthma and vitamin levels or exposure to certain chemicals or medications. How might this knowledge help us prevent the development of asthma, and what research still needs to be performed to determine the key factors here and put an end to the increase in asthma diagnoses? You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a special segment, Focus on Asthma. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Hsu, practicing general pediatrician and author. Our guest is Dr. Harold Nelson, professor of medicine at the University of Colorado School of Medicine and National Jewish Health Hospital in Denver. Welcome, Dr. Nelson. Happy to be here. Over the years, there have been many hypotheses about what's causing the increased numbers of asthma. First, let's talk about the prevalence of asthma. How common is it right now? The figures vary somewhat, but it probably is getting up to the order of perhaps 7 or 8% of the U.S. population. Is it your impression that the number of diagnoses is truly increasing, or are we just getting better at diagnosing it? There's probably no question that the prevalence of asthma in the United States started to increase back in the late 1970s and increase progressively at least for the next 20 years or maybe more. I think there's been some leveling off now in the last 5 to 10 years in the prevalence. Now let's talk a little bit about the hygiene hypothesis as a possible cause for both allergies and asthma. What are your thoughts on the exposure of environmental allergens as a factor, as particularly in asthma? The exposure to environmental allergens we think is an important factor in asthma, mostly because various epidemiologic studies have identified if children become allergic to indoor environmental allergens, such as hostess mite, cat, or dog, they are perhaps five or six times as apt to have asthma as the rest of the children. On the other hand, this same risk is not associated with uh, development of positive skin tests to pollens. So it's not just that people who are allergic are also more apt to have asthma, but it's very specifically sensitivity to indoor allergens. So therefore, they clearly are an important factor. Recent studies have shown that the timing of birth might be an important factor in the development of asthma and that fall babies, babies born in the fall, are more prone to asthma. Why might this be? It appears to be that there is an increased period of susceptibility to viral infections that occurs several months after birth so that those children who are born in the fall have their period of greatest susceptibility during the winter viral infection season of their first year of life. And it appears that viral infections, respiratory syncytial, but also rhinovirus infections, and perhaps other types as well, if they occur early in life, predispose the children then to having asthma later on. Now, we know that children tend to wheeze with viral infections, perhaps because of small airways, and this does not carry any risk for later asthma. 
but this is a separate consideration that a viral infection in the first year of life seems to be a predisposing factor to development of true asthma later in school-age children. What can you tell us about vitamin D levels and low vitamin D in particular being a possible risk factor for asthma? Well, one reason that there's an interest in vitamin D as a possible risk factor is that there was a decrease in outdoor exposure and sun exposure in the late 70s, just about the time that asthma began to increase. And those populations where the increase has been the greatest, the urban poor, the westernized societies that are in the more northern latitudes also tend to have chronic low vitamin D levels. Vitamin D is known to interfere with regulatory T-cell function and also with toll-like receptor signaling. So the first one could predispose to asthma just because asthma is a lack of regulatory effect on the Th2 response. The second, the interference with toll-like receptor function, could predispose the children to increased viral infections early in life. This could, therefore, cause wheezing, which might not progress to asthma, but also could predispose the children to development of asthma later on. Some studies support both of these outcomes. Another recent study showed that acetaminophen use, or Tylenol, in early childhood may also be a risk factor. What can you tell us about that? Well, this is a very strong line of evidence. There was the study reported by Richard Beasley of the Isaac data, for children six to seven years old. This was the phase two of the Isaac study. This was a study in over 200,000 children. Their data was that if the children used or if the parents gave the, the infants acetaminophen for fever in the first year of life, it increased their risk then for having asthma, eczema, or rhinitis when they were examined at six to seven years. And if they were currently using acetaminophen, it increased the risk for those three conditions even further. This is supported by a host of studies. There are studies used by women of acetaminophen in pregnancy is a risk factor then for development of asthma persisting into school-age years. And there are studies in adult women that use of acetaminophen is a risk factor for the development of new asthma. What about the use of acetaminophen without a fever, such as when we give it around the time of immunizations, perhaps to deal with the pain? Is that also a risk factor? In general, the effect is dose-related, so that very often the increased wheezing in, in offspring, for instance, is with women who frequently use acetaminophen. The increase in the development of new asthma in the adult women was in those who used it more than 14 days a month. So it's unlikely that just a one or two occasional administrations would carry any risk. It's more one of frequent recurring use. If you've just joined us, you're listening to a special segment, Focus on Asthma, from ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals.
I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Hsu. Our guest is Dr. Harold Nelson, professor of medicine at the University of Colorado School of Medicine and National Jewish Health Hospital in Denver. We're discussing possible causes for the increase in asthma. Is it possible that there's just an association or a relationship and not necessarily a causative link, such as you're using acetaminophen more in these children because they're exposed to viruses, or do you really think there's a cause and effect? Well, it's it's hard to establish cause and effect in this type of study. But in the women, for instance, this was the nurse's health study, they were specifically queried and did not have asthma. They were then followed for a number of years. Their use of acetaminophen was recorded. And as I said, if they used it 14 days a month or more, they were about 80% more apt to develop new onset asthma during that period of time. So it appears that the causal relationship is strongly suggested, although you can't establish it without a some kind of a randomized controlled trial. Do you think that the evidence is strong enough then that we should be encouraging our patients to limit the use of acetaminophen and maybe use ibuprofen as an alternative in infants that are old enough? Well, of course, the, the reason for the switch was Ray's syndrome. And I'm not a pediatrician. If ibuprofen does not carry that risk that aspirin does, then it would appear prudent to consider switching to ibuprofen for routine uses in, in children or even in adults. Yes, and you're correct. Ibuprofen does not have the risk of Rye syndrome. Finally, let's talk a little bit about household cleaning sprays as one of the proposed new risk factors that could be contributing to the increase in asthma. What can you tell us about household cleaning sprays? There are m- multiple studies that suggest this is important. For instance, there was a survey of over 4,000 Spanish women, and those who were in the domestic cleaning industry had an increased prevalence of asthma. But interestingly enough, those who had been in the industry and had left it had an even higher prevalence, suggesting that many of them may have left because of the development of asthma. But perhaps the best study was in the European Respiratory Health Survey, where they once again established that people did not have asthma. They followed them for an average of nine years. They determined in face-to-face interview the frequency of their use of cleaning sprays. And once again, there was a dose response. The more cleaning spray use the people had, the greater was their likelihood of developing asthma during that nine-year follow-up period. There also are studies in pregnant women where their use has been recorded, and it has been a risk factor then for the development of asthma, non-allergic asthma, in their children persisting. The study was done when the children were age eight, so clearly persisting up into school-age children. So once again, there are all these different approaches, and each one has reinforced the others that the use of spray cleaning compounds is a risk factor for the development of asthma. We've been talking mostly about the newer risk factors for asthma. What about some of the older ones that have been proposed a long time ago, such as pollution, cigarette smoke, animal dander, viruses, dust mold, cockroaches? 
Is there anything new that you'd like to share with our audience about some of these longstanding risk factors for asthma? Well, you're right. They're not new news, but there continue to be supportive studies coming out implicating them. I think clearly the hygiene hypothesis is still valid and probably accounts for the huge difference between the occurrence of asthma in, in say, rural Africa and in urban westernized societies. But certainly air pollution, particularly ozone and diesel exhaust particles, continue to be implicated. There's no question, as we talked about allergens and the increase in asthma corresponded to when we had the energy crisis and houses were made more airtight so that there was not the dilution by outdoor air, this increased humidity indoors. It trapped allergens and irritants in the house. Interestingly enough, the switch from feathered pillows and bedding to non-feather ones is an increased risk factor for asthma because the non-feather bedding carries about five times the load of house dust mites that feather bedding does. There's continued support for the fact that decrease in the eating of oily fish and particularly decrease in the consumption of fresh fruit and vegetables that contain antioxidants contribute to the increase in asthma. And then finally, there are those people who who feel that the decrease in exercise itself has contributed to asthma. There are two ongoing epidemics, if you will, which occurred at about the same time, and that was the epidemic of obesity and the epidemic of asthma. And there appears to be no question that each one is a risk for the other, but that obesity definitely is a risk factor for asthma. But probably the asthma that it's a risk factor is a little bit different. It doesn't seem to be so much associated with inflammatory mechanisms and may be more related to the mechanical effect of the obesity on lung function. Thank you so much to our guest, Dr. Harold Nelson, who has shared his knowledge and insights with us. We've been discussing possible causes for the increase in asthma. I'm Dr. Jennifer Shu. You've been listening to a special segment, Focus on Asthma, from ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMD, online, on demand, and on air. Please visit us at ReachMD.com, and thank you for listening.